Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ironicast. I'm your host, Mona. Normally with me are my co-hosts, Jeff and Alan. We are post-evangelical ministers and theological thinkers grappling with our place in the progressive Christian world. Thank you for joining us for another conversation on faith and culture. Alan is on sabbatical this summer, and Jeff has been booted from this episode, and his wife, Kat, has taken over the mic. You will find out why in a moment. So you may remember Kat from our family reunion episode, the last episode of 2015. So hey, Kat, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Also with Kat and I is a person who I am honored for you to meet, our good friend and mentor, Dr. Debbie Blades. Hi, Debbie. Welcome. Hey, Mona. It's great to be here. Oh, I'm so glad to have you both on. So we are about to tell you our story, which I've been looking forward to for months. So I've known Kat forever. Kat and Jeff were my youth leaders growing up when I was in youth group. So it's a lot of fun to be doing this project with really both of them because Kat does a lot of behind the scenes stuff too for the show. Um, and Debbie uh, is someone that we know from Actually, I, I know Debbie from a little church in Central California where she was the pastor's wife in a church that I visit. Kat, how do you guys know each other? Same way. Same I way? walked into that little church, a uh, beat up, broken pastor's wife, and Debbie spotted us from across the courtyard and beelined for us. And Debbie just has this way about her that draws people in and probably... Maybe it was even that Sunday. I think she and her husband took us out to lunch and we shared a little bit of our story. And then Debbie and I <laughs> went to a lunch, just the two of us, and I sobbed through that lunch. And the rest is history, I would say. <laughs> you know, I had a similar experience with Debbie, too. I think, yeah, Debbie, you've got this way of like spotting the people who need a little TLC, I think is the best way to say it. And I, I walked into that church and I felt very burnt out and beat up also. And Debbie just befriended me and she and her husband took me out to lunch and bought me a beer. And I was like, what's going on here? <laughs> Pastors aren't supposed to be personable and, and human and, you know, kind. I, Not I, ask I don't... you for something, just be your friend. Yeah. And actually, at that point, I'd been so burnt out at church. And um, I think you guys found out that I had some musical stuff and you needed help with worship. And I think you asked maybe you know, if I could help. And you saw the look in my eyes go, oh, God, please don't ask me. <laughs> and so I, I think one of the most healing things I've ever been told inside a church building was, you don't have to do anything for us. Just come and be with us. Just be mm -hmm. here. And mm -hmm. I think I started crying at that moment, too, because I had never experienced that. So again, Debbie, thank you for being here. And what has brought you to the place where you can see people who need some TLC? I don't know. I don't know. It's a uh, gift. It's uh, yeah. I just have to say a, a gift, and it was a gift that was probably in the works for a while before it fully manifests. You know, I had a long, hard past. I grew up in the home of a pastor's family, and all the men in my family were pastors. So all the women were pastors' wives, and that was all I knew. And then when I was eighteen years old, senior in high school, my dad walked out on my mom and stranded her with four kids. And it created such a break in not only our family, but in everything I knew. My world was just split apart. And it took a while. I really, really struggled during that period of time. And when I finally was able to make some kind of sense of my life, I ended up marrying a man who was an alcoholic. I had no knowledge of what drinking or, I mean, we were teetotaler denomination. And um, so it was a really hard marriage. And he ended up dying of cancer. But when he died, he left me with two small children. We were pretty much on the brink of poverty by that time. He had drank us just about to the edge. And I was in a Pentecostal church at the time, which had been everything to me a church should be. They were gracious and reached out and loving. And I couldn't have asked for a more perfect congregation to gather around me. But then I decided I would go back to school um, and finish my bachelor's degree and head into teaching so I could support my children and have time off in the summer and while I figured out what I was going to do with my life. And in the midst of that, I went to, I took a Bible as literature class. And I was terrified. You have no idea how terrified I was to take the class because I was sure that they were going to mess with my 
neatly constructed categories and somehow, you know, like a Jenga game, pull out a little piece and everything was going to topple. And I don't know why I was so frightened of that. Unbeknownst to me, the woman who taught the class was a pastor's wife herself. Her husband was a pastor in the Brethren Church, but I didn't know that at the time. And it was during that class that I had what I now refer to as uh, a rupture in my thinking. I later on in seminary found out it was, they call it an epistemological rupture, if you want to sound really highfalutin. Um, <laughs> episteme being from the Greek, from knowledge and or from knowing and ology, the, the study of it and a rupture, of course. So everything that I knew was ruptured in an instant in that class through an exercise she had us do, which was extremely overwhelming to me. And I won't tell you here on the air, you can talk to me personally about out, out there, those of you who might want to know, because I will cry, I'll just break down and cry. It was such a um, um, experience tactile, uh, visceral moment that uh, it brings me to tears. Even thinking about it, I have to be really careful uh, because it was so real. And that changed the trajectory of my life right then and there. I ended up not going into teaching, going to seminary. And I went to uh, a seminary in Chicago. I went to Garrett Evangelical United Methodist Seminary. At the time, I did not know that Rosemary Ruther, who is just an icon in the feminist theological world, and I had decided that that's what I was going to study, um, although I had no knowledge of what that even meant. I had no clue whatsoever, but I just knew that's what I was being asked to do. Why did you uh, choose it? I chose it because it was Methodist, and I grew up in a Methodist denomination. Now, mind you, it was a very right of center of Methodist Wesleyans, which were the holiness group. So all of no dancing, smoking, jewelry, short sleeves, any of that kind of stuff. Uh, and... I wanted to be able to push the envelope, but I didn't want to go so far that I felt like I was leaving the circle. And this school seemed to fit that bill. Only when I got accepted and I went there did I find out that there were these just iconic feminist theologians there. Um, I had not learned about any of them in my finishing up my bachelor's degree. So anyway, that's how I got there. And in the midst of that, I met my my second husband, who is a minister. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm back into the ministry world. I'm a pastor's <laughs> wife again. I can't believe it. And But he was wonderful. He was wonderful. And he kind of learned right along with me because he had come out of – well, he wasn't even raised in the faith. He was – he was an atheist. His family were agnostics. And he actually came to Christ in college under Campus Crusade for Christ. And that's how he even came into the faith, but not until he was in college. So he had had quite a progression from going from what he was raised in. I mean, what he what, what he stepped into, which was Baptist and ended up in a Presbyterian church, quite progressive Presbyterian church. So, So it was a good fit for us. And I had no idea that you could meet someone that was as caring and supportive as he was. So it was really wonderful. We ended up in San Luis Obispo from our um, from there after I finished my, my master's degree. I don't know how to explain it, but people just started showing up. Young professionals started showing up at our church. When the women found out that I had a master's and was now working on a doctorate in feminist theology, they're like, can we have coffee? And that's how it kind of started. And pretty soon I was having so many coffees that I didn't have time to get anything else done. <laughs> so, which was when I met you. I met you then during that time. And I always have an eye out. I know what it's like to walk into a church and no one greet you. And during that period of time when I was not in the church and married to someone who didn't go to church and trying to locate myself as we moved around different locations, I would try to go to churches and I can't think of anything more obvious that screams visitor than being eight months pregnant with a three-year-old in tow in a congregation of about 80 people and not a single person saying hello to me. Wow. No one. I'm sure they thought I was just some pregnant lady who wanted help from the church, and so nobody talked to me. And so that that left such an impression on me that I really believed that it was my calling to watch out. That's quite a story. I mean, yeah. yeah. So when I saw you, and when I saw Kat, well, Kat and Joff, they were just, just this, they were just pitiful looking. And, <laughs> oh, no. you know, they were pitiful looking. <laughs> they were so beaten up. I'm like, holy cow, church has done a number on these two. And, um, and I don't know how that just was kind of this intuitive sense. I, I just call it a gifting. And I made a beeline straight for them. And I remember I remember saying to them as I asked them, 
I'm very, very direct in my questioning. And I just said, you two look like you've been through a lot. What's going on? And so they told me a little bit. And I said, well, you know what? You've come to a great church because we really like to give people the opportunity to just kind of work out their own salvation. And she and Jeff just looked at each other like, who is this person and how does she know? And um, it kind of started from there. With you, Mona, it was a bit different in that you and I are the ones that connected. And I can remember our first meeting to you saying something about, how could I be so stupid? And I remember chastising you saying, don't ever call yourself stupid in my presence again. You did. Don't ever do that. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Well, and I, I said, I had a lot of frustration. I, I had well, a lot of course of, you did. A, a lot of us who grew up in what what's called, and I'm not saying that people are dumb. I'm saying this, it's a tradition of anti-intellectualism. That if you have mm-hmm. a curious mind or you ask too many questions, you really don't feel like you fit. You don't feel like there's a place right. for you. Right. And you see a lot of logical inconsistencies in some of these traditions. Not, I'm not saying that those folks are bad. I'm saying that it does. it's not the right fit. And if it's not the right fit, you come out with a lot. I came out with a lot of anger. So, right. Deb, you really saw that anger, I think, because you resonated with it to some degree. And mm-hmm. and so, yeah, I was on my way out of those worlds. And I was kind of on my way out of religion completely. And I think I would have completely left completely if it hadn't been for meeting you. So it's interesting to see how all of our worlds collide really significantly. Mm-hmm. So Ironicast probably wouldn't exist if it weren't for you, Deb. <laughs> oh, it's I true. get a cut. I get it a is cut. true. <laughs> a cut of nothing. <laughs> well, that's about what I get right now anyway. So, right. <laughs> um, but so, the, so the group started out of that. So out of that after, and I called them all together and I said, okay, let's, because I had these women saying all these different issues and they were all resonating with the same stuff we're talking about is feeling like there was no place for them in the church, feeling like they had no way to express just themselves as women. Um, and since I had been through all of that as well, and now that I'm studying feminist theology, it was just, it just seemed like a natural fit. And so I started a group and we called it Gentle Thursday, which of course Mona railed against the name because she thought we had to be like sissy or something. And I was I'm like, like no, I'm not gentle. Is, <laughs> no, she doesn't. No, she's not gentle. So she didn't want to be called that. But it had to do with being gentle with yourself, not chastising yourself, beating up on yourself, a place where you could just gather and be who you are and not be afraid that you could say what you wanted, rail against whatever, God, whoever, the church. It didn't make any difference. We were going to do this together. And that's how it started. And so we came together with a common meal and all of the major food groups, which would have been bread, cheese, wine, and chocolate. And soup, and I made soup. It doesn't get much better than that. Debbie makes the best soups. Yes, she does. <laughs> so the best soups. I'm actually, I had wine and chocolate specifically prepared for this conversation. So I'm enjoying this as we speak because it reminds Cat, me of you we guys. We should have done this. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Um, and so we met every other week and we gathered around the table. I gave them ratings and it was not going to be a consciousness raising se- session. If we were going to do theology, we were going to do theology. So I'm very interested in every one of, I call them my sister's lives, um, but they were to leave their lives at the door and we were going to get down to business because there would be time for that, but this was not the time. And we gathered around the table, well, communion-ish, it really is what we were doing. We were having communion and we would you know, enjoy each other's company, enjoy the cup and table and or the bread. And, and then it was time and we would move to the living room and we would start our discussions. And they were wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to come together with brilliant minds, brilliant minded women who were seeing things from perspectives they had never even known existed. And the freedom that came in that with for them was just remarkable. It was remarkable to watch the transformation in these women. Very remarkable. And so, when you say readings, I life. want to clarify to the listeners that we didn't do a Bible study. <laughs> no, is... we did. We stayed away from the Bible. No, we did. We actually did. Yeah, we 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 were mostly reading kind of master's level academic works, but mm-hmm. academic works mm-hmm. that really had kind of a heart and soul that weren't dry, but really kind of teased out issues that we were really r- grappling with ourselves. Um, so a pretty wide range of things. Um, but I, I think. Devitt, I think you told me at one point that you would kind of listen to the things that came up amongst the group and what questions people were asking, and you would find readings that matched those things. Mm-hmm. That's true. 
That's true. I didn't want it to be my agenda. I wanted to be driven by um, the questions and the concerns that the women in the group had. And so I, I, I did some initial ones to kind of introduce uh, what feminist what feminist theology was about and to get their minds kind of set in critical thinking with their faith. And then from then, I just kind of waited to see what kinds of things came up. But they were, ter- I mean, but but the most of the women were terrified, really afraid, just like I was afraid to go into that, that uh, Bible as literature class. They were afraid. They knew they weren't happy with what they'd experienced. And, but yet there was fear because of what they had experienced and what they'd been told to even consider feminist theology. And I remember that one of the questions I asked initially was, when you hear the words feminist theology, what comes to your mind? And Mona, I remember what you said. You said, I'm afraid of it. Yeah, because when I, in my undergrad, I went to an evangelical undergrad, and I'd love to hear what you think, Kat, too, or what you remember of this these conversations. But um, you know, I, I took a whole systematic theology co- class, and at the very end, we read like, one black theologian and one feminist theologian. And I remember distinctly going to my professor and with the feminist theologian piece in hand because I was fascinated by it because I really, even though I was in a denomination that ordained women and women had like a, a considerable amount of leadership in the church compared to other churches, I really honestly had internalized this idea that not only interpreting the Bible, but critical thinking itself and having strong opinions was a male thing. And so I took this piece to my professor and I said, what is this stuff and where can I find more of it? And he said, oh, that's fringe stuff. If you want to do real theology, <laughs> you will stay away from that. And so I, I listened to him. I listened to him because he was an authority in my life, right? So I didn't pursue it. And so I think at that point, I really honestly had been taught to to fear. I had been taught to fear. Mm. And not listen to your own intuition, not listen to your own voice, but to listen to that of male authority. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's not rebellious. That's honestly just being like an adult critical thinker, right? Right. That has a perspective from having a mm-hmm. certain set of experiences. So mm-hmm. what was it for you, Kat? Do you remember that moment? I do. I kind of grew up with this idea of like the word feminist being like a very aggressive, male-hating, bra-burning hardened woman. There was no connotation of the word that I identified with. So when Debbie asked that question, I just remember thinking, how am I going to have anything to say with this? Because I myself have never felt feminine before Gentle Thursday. I never was really into makeup or hair or nails or shopping or, you know, a lot of the things that girls my age tend to to be into. I wanted to be climbing a tree and catching a lizard and playing in the dirt. And so I just remember thinking, I might be in the wrong place here. <laughs> this is women's stuff. I don't want anything to do with it. I did. I have that thought too. <laughs> and apparently, I think I said somewhere in there that I didn't like women because mm-hmm. anytime this comes up, the Gentle Thursday sisters remind me that I said I didn't like women, which is really funny to me. But I think probably the only reason that I was brave enough to go is because you were there. You were somebody that I could could trust your opinion on things and somebody that I knew was a safe person to be around. And on some level, I knew that you felt similar to me with kind of feeling on the outside of what was girly. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like if you were there, it must be a safe place for me to be able to explore that with you. I didn't know that. That means a lot to me. Thank you. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's I, I resonate with the misogynistic thinking as a woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's such a strange. You're right. It's such a strange thing to think. I, I'm a woman, apparently, and I don't like women. What's going on here? And well, and that, you know, that's just a defense mechanism because I never felt like I fit in. So yeah. Where you don't fit, you just kind of justify in your mind why you don't fit. And you don't fit because you don't like them. <laughs> yeah, I don't like them. Well, I, and I think there's something to, you know, this, it's kind of blanket, batten down the hatches and be defensive. Because, there, you know, I think a lot of a lot of us growing up in these environments really, like, like you said, Deb, we're taught to not trust our instinct. And so 
mm-hmm. we we become incredibly defensive and we keep all of those thoughts really inside and we because mm-hmm. we don't really have any safe spaces to air them and just talk about them even if we're, we don't have the right words the right language like to make mistakes and even talking about it um mm-hmm. and it really for me it took someone like you deb who had you know a terminal degree in this stuff and who really had so much training that i felt comfortable making mistakes and knowing that I was going to be okay and that I wasn't going to be like burned at the stake for being a heretic or something. (laughs) Well, there's also another component with that, which is, especially coming out of evangelical churches, conservative evangelical churches, is that we are trained, women are trained that they are to be, oh, well, not all, but, you know, in varying degrees, Um, not submissive, but to be a little bit more silent or not rowdy or submissive. not ladylike, submissive. Yeah. And submissive. when and and when you are not a person that's just innately like that, I mean, I've always been assertive, a talker, uh, take charge, take command. That's just really who I am. Well, how can I line up with the women? I'm not. That's not how I am. And so it was easier for me to relate to men and get along in those kinds of conversations because I could stay, I could stay step with them. And so it took me a long time to figure that out, that women, especially women who have been raised in conservative evangelicalism, uh, they tend to don that kind of, of, of covering. Um, and I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And I would venture to say that maybe it's really less people's nature than we think, but they've been really socialized and trained and conditioned mm-hmm. and rewarded for being those ways. And and conversely, breaking out of those molds really punished, socially punished yeah. for, yes. for not Absolutely. complying. And so there's a lot of incentive and punishment going on to create those kinds of behaviors, but that not, might not be that person's natural disposition at all. So some of us are just more responsive to that than others maybe those systems but how heartbreaking is that 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 space in the church that should be a place where women can ask questions and flourish and be who god has created them to be is something that has made us strip down parts of ourselves in order to fit a mold that nobody even really well, I'm sure some people fit in, but the majority of women don't even fit in. And the place where you should be the most yourself is a place you have to beat parts out of yourself to fit. And that is so heartbreaking to me that that was our experience and that women experience that in church. And I do have to add that I actually had two groups and Mona overlapped in those two groups. She is one of the one of the women who actually went through the whole the whole time we were there um but of the i think actually 12 or 14 women went through and at least 10 of them were preachers kids <laughs> so i don't know what that tells you but uh, <laughs> i found it very telling that they were all struggling with the issues being kind of really born and bred into that um and and what it did to them what it did to many of them, but most of them did not come out unscathed. Yeah. And I, you know, and I can't speak for everyone, but I, I did come out, I did come out of that world and those experiences and even my undergrad and a lot of things and even, and even a marriage feeling like my basic self was at some level threatening mm-hmm. that I was, that was, I was just some component of me was a threat that I always needed to tone down. And I had never really experienced like, real unbridled support and unbridled encouragement to just be and you know and 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 learning about the history of why that is of why that dynamic exists Mm -hmm. it goes back to teachings about adam and eve and eve being the one who carries the sin and teachings about you know women's sexuality being dangerous to the point of burning women at the stake and and all of it all of it throughout most of Western history is is so reinscribing this idea. And so to be liberated from that idea and thought, oh, my basic human nature could be good. I can trust myself. I can say things and not be afraid. That was revolutionary to me. So life-giving and freeing. Mm-hmm. And lots of tears. Um, and I do. I want the audience to know it was not an easy thing to go through for any of us. It was a struggle and it was painful because you are really dismantling what you have thought to be truth 
Um, although it may be fractured truth and you may feel hurt by the truth, nonetheless, it's dismantling things that you thought were solid and discovering that, mm, gosh, darn, um, this is just not true. And and that was a painful process. So lots of tears, lots of lots of sorting through kind of theological ideas and systematic uh, categories. Uh, so we did a lot of that. I was really proud, though, of the work that everyone did because I pushed them hard. I mean, I just finished up my master's. I'm working on my doctorate and I'm pushing them as hard as I'm being pushed. And they all stuck right there with me. So it was really a testament not only to just their tenacity, but their desire and willingness and their intellectual abilities to want to, you know, hang in there and hang with it because it was not easy work. It was not. No. The, the amount of not. times I walked out of there going, ah, <laughs> <laughs> ah, I can't take it. It's so many. And actually, that's how this group is how I ended up at seminary. Also, Deb, I have so much to thank you for in my life. Holy smokes. Yes. Oh, thanks. Seriously. When you make it big, just remember me. <laughs> yeah, when I make it big. Okay, yeah, I'll yeah. do that. <laughs> um, so about a year and a half into this process, because I think I was with the group General Thursday for about two years, but a year and a half in, um, we you know, were reading all this really cool stuff and I was really being mentally challenged by it for like the first time in a while. And um, I remember going to Deb and saying, can you please give me more to read? Because this stuff's keeping me up at night and I can't get enough and I'd like to learn more. I, I want more. And you you looked at me with this twinkle in your eye like, <laughs> and I knew I knew in this moment that you were like going to say something that I was not going to like because <laughs> you had that face of like, I'm going to push you a little bit. You said, I think you're discerning a call to go to seminary. And I was like, hell no. <laughs> I think I actually said hell no to you. Um, and you just kind of chuckled and you kind of knew, you know, but I thought about it for a couple months and I was like, the only way I'm going to really get as much of this stuff as I want is if I go back to school full time and just dive in. And so that led to the decision to enroll. And uh, I'm so glad I did. You know, it, it's it's interesting how all of us have been really, really deeply formed by this group. And I would say that out of that group, out of that group, at least three of you went on to seminary and probably another three or four or five actually stayed in the church and have you know, at least stayed in the church and have done different things. And then the rest have just trying to been figuring out what to do and how, where they want to go and how to move forward in faith without stepping into organized institutionalized religion. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the interesting part about this is that once you kind of traverse the deconstruction process, um, it kind of leads a lot of us away from religion as we've known it, because religion as we've known it, those structures, carry with them ideas and balances of power that are unpalatable to the way we see that life should be flourishing. So it's not just railing against structure for railing's sake. It's that that it, in order to be fully alive and the way we understand being fully alive is those structures of belief are antithetical to being fully alive in the way that we know that we can and should be it, through our belief in the divine, right? It's not Mm -hmm. atheistic it's really honestly inspired by a theological understanding of god wants us to be fully alive and fully flourishing and that's one of the keynote statements of feminist theology is mm -hmm. is uh life fully flourishing right all life all life all living kind all living kind yeah and especially those who have experienced oppression you know i want i want to go back a little bit though because i really want cat to tell a little bit of her story and where she was when she actually came into the group, because this is another area, especially in the church and for women, that is so marginalized and not spoken about, but so desperately important to women. So Kat, what was your experience? How did you come to be part of the group? When Jeff and I ended our time as youth pastors at the church, a few years before that, we, we'd been trying and trying to get pregnant and nothing was happening. We saw a bunch of different doctors. Nobody had any answers. And then, of course, all this is going on without us sharing this with anybody, because when you're in leadership in the church, there are just places of vulnerability that sometimes you feel that you cannot go. And that was one of them for us. And so we had had this understanding of God 
that God's not going to give us more than we can handle and kind of this idea that because we had given our lives to God uh, in general and in ministry that we had some kind of protection over us. And when we got pregnant, finally, we were so ecstatic. And as soon as we had our pregnancy confirmation appointment, we started telling people that we are finally pregnant and we were so excited. And we even announced it at our church. And then we had gone on vacation, kind of a little preemptive baby moon to Chicago. And a couple days after we got home, I woke up in the middle of the night with my stomach hurting and I went to the bathroom and there was blood and I I was absolutely devastated. And I tried to pull myself together enough to go in and wake Jeff up and tell him what was going on and sat down next to him and was sobbing so bad I couldn't even speak. And so we lost that first pregnancy. And we had some very well-meaning people in our church tell us some very terrible and devastating things. Like, for example, we had lost the pregnancy. I had passed the fetus. It was all done weeks prior. I had a woman in the church come up and rub my belly and say something along the lines of, we will stand on what God says, not what the doctors say, and this baby will be fine. And I remember just looking at her and thinking, this is what I get when I come to church, because we had had this idea that God would protect us somehow. I I don't know. And it, it was almost as though God was like, I know you've been trying for this for so long. Here you go. Just kidding. I'm going to take it away. And Jeff and I were absolutely devastated. And there were no words for people in the church that were positive for us, except for Jeff shared a couple weeks ago on the show. We did have that one woman in the church who donated a Bible in the name of baby Manildi and talked to us about it. And that was so moving and helpful for us. But being a pastor's wife and having already told the congregation and then having a miscarriage, it's something that most women experience. There's a large number of pregnancies that end in miscarriage, and it's just, it's not talked about. And people typically don't know how to deal with grief anyway. So trying to publicly deal with that kind of grief in a congregation where that was quite charismatic, that A large number of people were part of the name it and claim it and really felt like, you know, maybe you and Jeff just need to pray harder or read the Bible more and God will answer your prayer. And so that's a big part of my rupture when I first met Deb is I had this understanding of this God who was loving and protective and wouldn't give us more than we could handle that had been completely shattered. And I I had no framework for how to rebuild and if I even wanted anything to do with a God that would treat us like that after we gave our lives to this God. And what does that mean as a woman created in the image of God, who is a creator God, who I myself cannot create? Am I broken? What does that mean for who I am in God? And I had all of these questions about what it it means to be a woman who can't do what other women can do. And it was, again, a way that I felt isolated from other women because you see these 15-year-olds getting pregnant the first time they ever have sex, and here we are trying to do everything right, trying to honor God in our lives, and we felt like, and this is what we get in return. And so before we even entered into the feminist theological discussion, I already had my ideas of the God that had been constructed by the churches I grew up in was already torn to shreds, which is why I looked like a sad dog with my tail between my legs when um, I first met Debbie because my my ideas of God had been just demolished from this miscarriage and then still not ever being able to conceive years after that was it was the hardest thing I've gone through as an adult by far. And um, 
we were, I was able to process through that a lot in Gentle Thursday. We did some readings on it. Well, Kat and I met, first of Mm -hmm. all, Kat and I started meeting individually because her grief was to the point that it shouldn't be shared in group. She was not (laughs) ready to be, No. no. And so she and I did a fair amount of work oh, I don't know, maybe six months, around six months before. And this was still as women are accumulating and showing up at church and wanting to have coffee. And so by the time she got to General Thursday, um, you know, at least we had done some work so she could come in in a way that she had moved through some of of the grief process. Uh, But knowing that, you know, I had this fantastic book uh, that, that spoke to miscarriage and reproductive loss and that I really, really wanted us to get to, but it had to be Kat's timing. She was not ready to go near that kind of a subject. And so it wasn't until the, towards the end, um, into the second year that, that we were able to, uh, as a group, go through that with Kat saying, yes, now's time to do that. She'd moved through grief enough that she could tackle it. And it was really life-changing for all of us. I think you remember that, Mona, because you were there for that one. And what a wonderfully, whether you had lost a child or not, the fact that it addressed the issues of grief and loss uh, for women, it was so powerful, so incredibly powerful. It was uh, profound. And, yeah. And I think mm-hmm. a, a lot of the people in the group had had experienced miscarriages, maybe more than most half. Most of us. Most of us. Most yeah. Of, yeah. And as someone who'd never, you know, really tried or to conceive yet or you know any of that kind of thing um well i couldn't relate to the specific i could relate to the questions that arise out of loss like that like where the heck is god like what what is happening you know and and experiences that women go through in particular with their bodies um that really are unrelatable if you don't have a uterus if you don't you know and that's not meant to be cruel or exclusive that's meant to to highlight the experiences that a lot of people go through. So, you know, questions about what it does even mean to be a cisgender woman or, or a, a gender woman, things like that. It, it was, it was really moving. It was really, really moving. And it was, it was, it was really freeing to be able to openly discuss that. I mean, the church is not a place where miscarriage or, um, or inability to conceive or any kind of reproductive loss is ever spoken of. And that's why I detest detest Mother's Day in the churches and what they do to women. It's very painful. It's extremely painful. Even though I didn't go through that personally, I watched my friends who did. And I'm so thankful. Shout out to my husband, refuses to honor a secular holiday like Mother's Day in the church because he's seen too many times when and experienced it in his own life in his first marriage miscarriage and how how devastating that is. And nobody honors it. Nobody honors it. Nobody acknowledges it. You're just supposed to go on with the bitter words, you know, stuck in your mouth like bile of saying, well, God must have had better plans for that child. Well, what a vindictive God that is. Or you can just try again. Yeah, just try again. And so anyway, so that was really healing for all of us. And to be able to reach out to other women who might have gone through that because we went through this together and learned learned something about that through this theological this theological book uh it was great it was just awesome really really that was a great takeaway super takeaway for that you know Mm -hmm. and it gave me a framework to also think about other types of traumas that are just not acceptable to be discussed um and as someone who would later go through a divorce that's another category of things that you're just not allowed to talk about you're not there's no space in churches most churches to process that experience and so i was able to draw on some of the work we did for miscarriage because it's it feels metaphorically similar like you birthed this thing or you know you were you had this plan but you you were mistaken or you failed or you something went horribly awry or you did something wrong and it's your fault or you know all this shaming that happens or whatever people say or think about these experiences um it 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 really honestly i think going through that with you all helped me deal with the grief of my experience better more healthy not like you can escape grief but it helped me deal with it in a more healthy way um because i did understand that there just wouldn't be spaces and there wouldn't be understanding and that was that was just something I had to accept and, and go find those places and people that I could feel safe with. So, yeah. So that's an example of some of the work that we did. And that, that one really sticks out in my mind as, as being especially poignant. And the name of that book, for those of us who would uh, like to read it, would be, right. do you remember the title, Deb? Yeah, it's called Deferred Hope by Serene Jones. And it's a, a series of 
I think, five theologians who who did this work, who each experienced some type of reproductive loss in their own lives. And each one of the stories are extremely powerful. So I, I'm not sure. Sh- yeah, you'd have to find it online. I, I can't remember right now off the top of my head if you can just go to Amazon and get it, but I'm sure. I'm yeah, sure it'll we'll put a link there. in the show notes for those okay. of you who are, who are yeah, interested. If you have, so if you have friends or if you have you yourself, I, I would strongly encourage you to get a hold of that book or if you're a pastor listening or have any kind of influence or say with other with women to take a look at that book and you'll know when a woman's ready it, initially they're not ready to read that stuff but but uh to have that as a resource that you can say things and the best thing you can do is just acknowledge the grief that goes on and not pretend like it's going to get better or that it's not that big of a deal the best you can do is just honor it and come alongside yeah and it's not very long, so it's no, it's, it's not a, a long book. Very good resource. You're right. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So now that we've told our stories and we've told the story of this amazing group that has been so impactful in our lives, maybe we should give people a better sense of how we understand feminist theology. Like, what is it? Well, I start with women's experiences. That's where it starts. Uh, it, it's it's a theology that has grown out of. Considering that, first and foremost, feminist theology draws on the discipline of feminist theology, I mean, excuse me, feminism, and all of the resources that it draws on. So feminism in and of itself utilizes multiple disciplines, and feminist theology draws on feminist theory and all of the other disciplines as well. So it is a discipline that arises out of women's experience putting women first and other marginalized or oppressed peoples, but it starts there because we've also been now working with doing some womanist theology. So not to exclude or, but to help define, because there definitely are differences in, in theologies, uh, especially when you get into the realm of, you know, working with women and women's experiences. So. Yeah. And I, I would, yeah. if I can tell that's pretty that. simple. Ex- yeah, yeah. Pretty simple explanation. Yeah, In a nutshell, yeah. feminism generally it's been defined as the radical notion that women are people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which seems like it doesn't have to be stated, but it does, unfortunately. Yes. Just like you have to say Black Lives Matter because they haven't in the past. Similar idea. Um, and theology is the study of God or the questions about God. So, you know, how 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 are women people in God and how do those things go together or relate? And so what it does is it causes people that it causes a lot of people who study this stuff to challenge orthodox or traditional notions that have said women are not people. Um, so, so how that kind of does a dance together. And like, like you said, Deb, it, it definitely has been criticized in the last few decades as being only about, you know, globally wealthy white women. And so a lot of the conversation recently has been how to bring in conversation around intersectionality, around different types of experiences that are not just, you know, the cisgender idea of women or a racialized idea of women, but all women, women of different color, women of different, you know, trans women, queer women, all of it. So that it's a really become a really broad umbrella. Right. And for me, I've always been interested in language. Language and words are just really at the heart of everything I do. And coming to a recognition that even the language of traditional theology and traditional religion is so woman excluded. It is just so male dominated. And even language itself, that has been a really powerful tool. And once you kind of grasp a hold of that and begin to use it, it becomes an extremely powerful tool to try to uh, challenge different and try to even speak different for yourself and bring empowerment through your words. I mean, words are powerful. And when it came to saying, wait a minute, wait a minute here, why is everything in male language? What happens? Well, and then you always get, oh, come on, you know, we mean you too. Well, then why don't you just say it? And something so simple as saying, why can't you say brothers and sisters? Why can't we say that? Why does it have to be assumed that we're included under that? Um, That has been really, that has been for me personally, was one of the most revolutionary things in discussing feminist or learning about feminist theology is to challenge the way language is utilized. I was studying the way language worked even before I went into theology. So that has played a really pivotal role in my own formation, my own theological formation. And that's also why... 
those of us who were part of the group have had a hard time stepping back into church because the masculine language that is used from the pulpit to from the hymns that are sung or the worship songs that are sung, uh, once you're aware of that language, to step back into it is painful and frustrating, and it's really difficult to find your place as a woman there when you feel excluded everywhere you turn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to never be named. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the language we're talking about is uh, giving people more examples of what 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 exactly we mean. It's not just male pronouns for God. God, He, Father, God, only Father. Right. You if you talk about Mother God, people start getting real nervous <gasps> in most congregations, right? Um, mm-hmm. it's not just that it's actually a lot, it can be a lot deeper than that. It often oh, it goes a lot, lot deeper. deeper than that. It goes a lot deeper than that. What, what we don't realize about language is that language is male normative. It just is. And we didn't create, women did not create the language. We were given the language. You know, women are not creators of culture. Women are transmitters of culture. And it's just been that way forever. And, and the same with language. That's why we end up with, because maleness has, has been the norm, um, we end up words like mankind and we end up with uh j- these are just simple examples we end up with manhole cover or try to stop yourself from saying oh man you cannot stop yourself from saying it or calling women guys when they say oh come on debbie you know that we don't mean guys when we're I talking think I to girls i think i did that earlier in this conversation i apologize <laughs> <laughs> it's extremely hard but yet it continues to it continues to embed this idea that that words for women are not important. And so I run into this all the time, people saying, oh, come on, Debbie, oh, you're not on that stuff again, are you? And I'm like, yes, I am, because it does matter. Words matter. Words matter. And if you continue to negate women in your language, then you continue to negate them in reality as well. And that gets embedded in our heads. And you try to change some women from doing that, and they do not like it. It's really difficult to come to terms with the fact that you are, as a woman, are left out of language, and especially in the church. And so you try to, I try to, if I do uh, liturgical prayers or if I do preaching, I don't want to shock anybody because I don't want people to stop listening to me because they've been shocked, but to push it a little bit and use language that we don't normally use to understand who God is. And women love it because it resonates when you use words that resonate with them. I just have women come up to me and go, oh my gosh, that prayer was so meaningful. Um, Not so much men, (laughs) not so much men, because it doesn't sound like that male dominated language that uses exclusive male pronouns. And yeah, and a big corollary for me is the violent language that, like you're saying, war metaphors in particular, like how, how many times in a pulpit will you hear things like God is triumphal, conquering king, triumphant prince of, you know, prince of peace, or um, it, there's a lot of like, uh, yes. the aggression that is typically there's associated. There's a lot of hierarchical, yes, imperialistic language. With yeah. It, and the yeah. aggression that's typically associated with masculinity, not necessarily maleness, because not all males are aggressive, but mas- right, the, right. the idea of hyper-masculinity gets transmitted onto God, and you get a lot more of masculine, violent, aggressive language versus nurturing, caring, supportive, earth-centered language. And so a lot of feminists have come along and said, you know, God is God is by nature a nurturer and a creator that's more akin to a, a nurturing womb than some some warring king and why have we aired so much on the side of the warrior god like where did you know that's got that's got a really long history but those are the kinds of questions that feminist theologians will ask yeah well you just get a lot of pushback on that but it is important it is important so check your language you know just check your language and see what you're saying you know, sometimes you don't even realize it. raising two little girls yeah i have tried really really hard not never to use the term guys around them but they've picked it up in culture. And every time they do it, I always say, we're girls. Can we say girls or gals or you all? And it's incredible to me how as we acquire language, that stuff is so embedded everywhere that even as parents, if we try to direct and mold a certain way, you can't stop culture from coming in and having an influence it's really difficult because 
you guys is everywhere. Well, and and I've pushed Without back on this Debbie a little voices. bit. The, I mean, we've got a, a little bit of a point of disagreement about the word guys because I, I see it honestly as becoming a really gender neutral term and you can disagree. That's fine. But to what degree can language change over time? Does it always embed those meanings? You know, what if you don't want to be constantly reminded of your gender? What about genderqueer people who don't fit in a binary? Um, to what degree do we be inclusive? You know, um, it's just so many interesting questions that arise from that. And that, you know, it, and if you don't like the term guys. But that's why language is important. That's why it's important. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it starts lots of discussions. I mean, people have varying places they stand on that issue. And some people think it's not important. Um, I do think it's important. And so, yeah, it just, you know, it's like anything. It's like you're not going to agree on all things. But if language is something that bothers you, then check your own language and see what's being said. And if it's not something you like or want to participate in, then change it. Not easy, but you can do it. And if it isn't something you care about, well, okay, no worries. No worries. <laughs> so, no, I'm not here to arm twist anybody. It's. Oh, no, I didn't think you were. Yeah. I, I'm just. Oh, no, no. I just yeah. don't want your audience to think that either. Yeah. So, I'm. No. I'm trying to highlight that there is diversity. You know, we're, we're not. Sure. We're not here to say oh, no. that women have an essential singular nature or anything like no. that. No, um, no, no, no. We. Really, this whole project, if I, you know, it, and I'd love to get your last words on on this conversation. And thank you both so much for being here. It's been so good. I feel like I'm back at Gentle Thursday with our soup I and know. our <laughs> wine. And um, our wine and our chocolate. You know, I think for me, this whole thing culminates in the idea that creating spaces for real talk and creating spaces for asking questions is so important, especially if you feel like there have been these deep longings in your soul for something different and and those instincts may be god-given they they very much may be completely and utterly valid and to validate those feelings and those really deep desires and to find other people who will validate them with you a lot of people are afraid that that will get them in trouble somehow but finding those spaces and if you can't find them making them those spaces are is so so important and i've learned so much from both of you debbie and kat about how to do that and how to do that in a community and create safety for each other. So it's been so, it's been so good. It's been so, so, so good. And, and I want to add to that. If, if, you know, if there are people out there listening or thinking, wow, I have women in my life or men, whichever, that I think would benefit from this, just make sure that when you create space, the space is open for any kind of comments that come out of their mouth, because people are wrestling with really strong, strong concepts and especially when you get to theology and faith that no one should be forced to dismantle anything before they're ready to or if they don't want to that there has to be a place where you can come together with people and have the freedom to in a loving atmosphere say the things you really need to say without fear of uh, any kind of What's the word I'm looking retribution? for? Incrimina retribution or re incrimination or judgment. There has to be space for that. So if that's something you think you can do, draw them in. They will come. They will come. Serve them soup and get chocolate and wine and you will have a great time. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Kat? I just know that there are a lot of listeners who relate to having grown up in some type of religious institution and something has happened and maybe you're not going anymore or you're searching for somewhere or you're just in a place you never thought that you would be growing up in the church and you believe things that you never thought you would believe. There are still people out there who love God, who love the Bible and who feel those same things from changing, feel the loneliness that maybe you go sit in church and you look around and wonder, what am I doing here? Or does anyone else hear what was just said that is completely asinine? Or um, just the loneliness of trying to talk to your family about something new that you read or some new experience that you had with God that they just don't understand because they're not there. Or don't want to hear. Or don't want to hear because they're afraid that you're not alone in that, that there are a lot of us out here who feel the same way. 
finding those spaces and those places where you can be yourself and search and grow. I feel more alive and connected to God than probably ever. And I'm probably the least connected to a body of believers than I've ever been. But because of the things that I've learned in Gentle Thursday and the women that I can draw strength on, even if they're not right next to me, that's how I experience the love of God. And don't be afraid to to start something if you if what we are saying resonates with you and you really want that kind of safe space, be the one to start it. And you don't, don't be have afraid. to have a doctorate. No, you don't. And don't be afraid for it to fail. I don't know if Kat or Mona know this, but I actually tried to start something like this several years before I met any of them, and it didn't work. Matter of fact, when I was doing my doctoral work, we had to come up with a thesis or a dissertation project because it was a practical doctorate. And I went to my advisor and told her what I wanted to do, which was something similar to the model of Gentle Thursday. And she said, mm, that's probably not going to work. Well, which I didn't believe her. And I went home and tried it anyway, and it didn't work. It was not, it was a good first attempt, but it just didn't work right. And we ended up disbanding it or meeting less and less, and it just kind of went away. But it didn't deter me. It just made me more determined that I would find a way that it would work. That was clear now what didn't work, but I it was still a safe place to talk, a safe space to talk, but it wasn't what I where I wanted it to be. I didn't feel like I was really fulfilling it. So it was a great trial run. So don't be afraid if it, if you try it and it doesn't work, it will work. Just keep at it. If God's calling you to do that, the right people will end up coming. They'll be there. It's interesting to me, Deb. Thank you both. Those That was awesome. That's really good feedback. It's interesting to me that after all that we've been through, we're still using words like God. We're still using words like calling. You know, we, we still use words like presence and being. I mean, there you don't have if you start deconstructing, I think some people are afraid that you'll just never stop. And maybe maybe you, you won't, but you don't have to. It doesn't have to go that far. It doesn't have to be that scary. You just need companions. You need companions because it's it's really hard alone. It's very, very hard. Well, alone. and we also fall and and I know we're running out of time now, but we also I mean, I could use language that I might use in the group, but I want to use language that people will hear what I'm saying and not hear words that I choose to use. And that's what makes the difference. So I may change my language um, depending on the group I'm with. But I mean, everybody knows when you say God, they know what that means. If I say Sophia, they might be like, holy cow, who is she talking about? Oh my gosh. So I don't want to do that. I want to be aware enough of who my audience is and who I'm talking to that I am winsome with my words. Language is flexible. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. So uh, in closing, um, I'd love to recommend a couple of books. And if you both would like to recommend books, that'd be great. We've recommended Deferred Hope by Serene Jones on loss and miscarriage and theology. Another book that made a huge impact on me that we read with the group is a book called When Women Were Priests by Karen Torgidson. And we started in chapter five, the first few chapters are kind of more archaeological heavy and kind of dense. But in fact, chapter five really gets into the theology of the early church fathers. And it's it's fascinating and it's accessible. It's not super, super academic. Um, so that's a great book. Do you, do you either of you have anything to add to that? Well, it just depends on what people want to you know, what 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 starts to pique people's interest if they want to get into issues of the Bible or whether they want to get into issues of theology, such as uh, theological categories like atonement is a big one we worked on, uh, atonement language or biblical text. The meta the marriage metaphor was a huge one for the group. Uh, let's see, what was the book we used for that? We used Renee, was it Renata Weems? Mm-hmm. Renata Weems, Battered, Lo- uh, Battered Love. Mm-hmm. Battered Love was a good one to look at the marriage metaphor and where that, where that surfaced and how prophets such as Ezekiel, Hosea and Isaiah or Jeremiah, I can't remember right now at the top of my head, and how they were really the ones who began to bring that in and how that crept into the uh, into religious language and the damage that has done. So those are some good ones that that will at least let you explore, begin to explore. And it's very hard reading. It's hard reading. 
Uh, not hard academically, but I mean hard to want to embrace. Emotionally hard. Yeah. Emotionally. But you go to the Bible and look and you're like, oh my gosh, it, it, that is what it says. It's Why have I never seen that? Oh, yeah. yeah, it's incredibly eye-opening. What you've, what you've just learned, learned to stomach and overlook, um, but that's in there. And you've a lot of us have been hearing it our whole lives. So, mm-hmm. so I... I have to say thank you both. This has been amazing. Thank you both for coming on the show. If you listeners would like to get in touch with Debbie, email the show and we will put you in touch with her. If you want to start a group like this, if you want resources, if you want ideas, if you're like, gosh, I've never heard anything like this before. I I need to know more. um, We would be happy to put you in touch with Debbie. So if you would like to get in touch with us for any reason, ask questions, give us feedback. Um, if you have anything to add, you'd like to dig a little deeper on the topic, you can go to ironicast.com slash 72 and you can reach out to Dr. Debbie Blades. For all their questions, comments, concerns, suggestions for the show, you can find all the ways to contact us at ironicast.com slash feedback. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you both for joining us. And we hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day. 